Welcome to the Aegeas podcast series, Studio 2030, in which we bring you big questions, big ideas and big debates about the future and how we can all navigate our way towards success. We discuss the trends that may change the way we think about the world and influence our views on what's most important. So there's a lot to talk about. Welcome back in Studio 2030. I'm your host, Ianka Flerakers, and this is our fourth episode of the podcast. We'll discuss the challenges and opportunities of Europe in the world with two guests. And my first guest is Antonio Cano, Managing Director Europe of AGIAS. Hi, Antonio. Thanks. Good morning. And my second guest is Peter de Keizer. Peter has worked as Chief Economist of BNP Paribas Fortis in the past, but now runs the strategic communication and public affairs firm Growth Inc. Welcome, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you. Gentlemen, today we will be talking about the position of Europe in the world. But before going into that, I want to briefly discuss the image of the EU. Because, Peter, there is a lot of negativity surrounding the EU. Am I correct? When it comes to the EU, it always seems that uh, being very cynical or pessimistic about the EU makes you much more credible and knowledgeable about uh, Europe. And often in Europe, we tend to be extremely critical of ourselves. So we think of the EU not getting anything done, being hopelessly divided, having too much bureaucracy, then you have uh, the Brexit, then you have the refugee crisis, whatever. So there's a lot of negativity surrounding Europe, especially with Europeans. And um, I think some criticism regarding Europe is justified, but let's say most of the exaggerations that we see are too much. The EU has a crucial and positive impact in many domains. That's the way the EU is being perceived in the rest of the world. And, and I do see a lot of potential for the future. So there is positive news coming up later. But Antonio, do you agree with what Peter is saying? Yes, well, as Managing Director of Europe, I can see practically every day that in Europe there is much more that unites us than that divides us. We, we share a history, we share culture, we share values. And a lot has been done. Uh, we have, for example, this great common currency. Uh, but, but I agree with Peter. There are indeed some some shortcomings. We, for example, would like to have a true single market for financial services uh, in Europe today. That is very complicated because legislation between countries is still very different. But actually, I share Peter's optimism. A lot has been done, and I don't like these negative stereotypes uh, about Europe. There is a great future for Europe. So let's now discuss the current economic outlook for Europe. Peter, let's start with the impact of the pandemic. What was its impact on the European economy and the economy worldwide? Well, 2020 was the year of the pandemic. So we saw sharp contractions of economies worldwide in 2020, with China being the notable exception and Europe contracting much more than the US did, uh, for example. And one way of explaining this is what I would call the impossible trilemma of COVID-19. So what this means that countries had the choice between either freedom, the economy, or health. But you could only choose two out of the three. And you could say that China chose saving its economy and battling against the COVID situation, but at the expense of personal freedoms, privacy, etc., which made sure that the Chinese economy was one of the only ones to actually um, record growth 
in uh, 2020. Now, in Europe, we uh, are very attached to our freedoms, to our civil rights, to our privacy, and we wanted to get the pandemic under control as soon as possible, which meant that the economy suffered badly with the closures of shops, etc. And the US uh, made the other choice. Freedom was very important for them as well, but they wanted to keep the economy open for as long as possible, which resulted, obviously, in much worse health outcomes. So, so that is maybe one way of looking at the difference in uh, growth outcomes for the rest of the world. So it was a matter of setting priorities. Yes, exactly. It was hard choices, setting priorities. And for Europe, health and freedom were the priorities. It is, let's say, in our institutional and cultural DNA. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been in this situation for almost two years now, and we do not seem to be out of trouble yet. Well, we had very high hopes for 2021. And let's say at the end of 2020, when it was clear that the vaccines were coming, it was clear that vaccination for all, the vaccination drive would reopen the economies. And we had forecasts for very sharp economic growth in uh, 2021. And it worked out that way in the first couple of uh, months and quarters of 2021. But then it seemed that, uh, let's say, we don't reach uh, maximum vaccination in all countries. There's new strains of the virus. There's declining effectiveness of the vaccines. And so it seems that uh, new variations of the virus are popping up again and new closures of the economy will weigh again on economic activity. So after a very sharp rebound in the first half, or let's say the first three quarters of 2021, we're facing a slowdown yet again. Mm-hmm. Now, what did the impact of COVID tell us about Europe, Antonio, and the European Union? Well, due to the COVID uh, pandemic, you could say that the world has become a smaller place. Um, travel at some point in time practically stopped, and it is, it is still not where it was before. You had supply chain disruptions, and we could say that uh, business travel and business contacts, as they were in the past, uh, They are not here yet and probably not anytime soon. And we can see that uh, firsthand at IGS, where we have a model whereby we share a lot of best practices with our joint venture partners, which is really essential to our model. Um, most of those joint ventures are based in Asia. And as travels become uh, quite complicated, we try to solve it through other means, like teleconference, but it's not uh, the same thing. So yeah, you could say somehow that globalization has gone in reverse. Uh, factories, ports uh, closed down, especially in China. Um, and companies in Europe particularly, uh, and also to some extent the US, realize that they've become too dependent on Asian imports. And they're now searching for suppliers that are closer by. And that's actually a great uh, opportunity for Europe to actually intensify the trade uh, within Europe. Uh, we can say it's better to have good neighbors than distant friends. Now, Europe, let's not kid ourselves, will never be able to be fully self-supporting, but it is uh, striving to be less dependent on Asian import and Middle Eastern and Russian energy. We've seen that managing the pandemic on a global scale, it is just too far-fetched, it's too complicated. But also to manage it on a country level, we see that it is not very efficient, that it's very confusing, particularly for European citizens. So therefore, the European level would actually be the ideal level to manage that. And a more aligned approach in how to deal with the pandemic would surely give Europe a boost and improve its mm -hmm. image amongst the European citizens. Yeah. But as we all have noticed, life has become more expensive recently in the aftermath of the pandemic. Prices of fuel, food, clothes, they all went up. Inflation has increased. Now, what are actually the reasons behind this higher inflation and what is Europe's role? Well, the first reason is linked directly to the pandemic. We've had called this stop and go process. 
So in the first phase of the lockdown, a lot of factories, sports were, were shutting down, so supply kind of disappeared. You had initially also uh, a reduced demand as uh, a lot of people across the globe were in lockdown. But we've seen as lockdown measures were relaxed, people started to consume and you had this enormous boost in consumption, but supply was not always there. And that has created this uh, demand and supply shock, which has led to an increase in prices. Another factor for that inflation is more specific to Europe, where we see that the European Central Bank is applying now for quite a while what is called a loose uh, monetary policy to stimulate growth and to allow governments to borrow at a very low interest rate. So you could say that uh, government debts don't matter that much anymore as governments can borrow at practically uh, zero cost. Now, just to illustrate how that works, eh, suppose that a country would borrow, say, a billion, and it spends that billion into the economy by uh, constructing schools, paying higher pensions, uh, social benefits. So the economy grows thanks to that boost of money into the economy. People start spending more. And the government starts earning also more taxes through value-added tax, corporate tax, etc. Now, typically, if you have this, say, this one billion injection in the economy, the government could earn like 300 million more taxes. If they do that for 10 years, actually it has collected 3 billion. It has borrowed just 1 billion, no interest. So it only has to pay 1 billion. It has collected 3. So it not only has it fueled growth, but it has also helped reduce the deficit it had. So if you keep that long enough, actually government deficits kind of um, melt away. Now, this policy of low interest rates is also causing consumer price inflation, so the things that we buy, because as we can borrow more easily, we just buy more goods, and therefore prices go up. But it also leads to price increases in other assets, in other things that are less obvious. Take real estate, so houses. As interest rates are lower, people find it easier to take a larger mortgage and are therefore willing to pay more for a house, therefore creating an increase in house prices. Also, the fact that interest rates are so low for many investors that want a, a decent long-term return on investments, they see that government debt, which is practically at zero, is not that interesting, and therefore they start buying other investments, like, for example, shares. And also there, that extra demand for shares puts the prices up and creates what we called, or some called, an asset price bubble for shares mm-hmm. and real estate. Yeah, and what impact does all this have on Aegeus specifically? For an insurance company like uh, Aegeus, this increase in uh, overall inflation has an impact on our costs. So uh, repairing a car costs more, your hospital bill will be higher. But an insurance company, when you sell an insurance policy, your customer pays his insurance premium, say at the beginning of the year. And we base our estimates on costs that we expect to increase with a certain level. Now, if inflation is much higher, actually we'll wind up paying a much higher amount in claims than we initially had expected. So we will see actually that the premium you asked, say, 12 months ago, was too small. And you can obviously cannot go back to the customer and ask that you have to pay me more. No, the customer buys a premium for the foreseeable future. And then the low interest rates is also an issue for us um, because we are big investors. So we want a decent return on our investments, investments like real estate or bonds. And today that's becoming uh, quite hard. And it means that it's actually quite difficult to give returns or promise returns to customers that seem attractive to him, certainly compared to many years ago. 
a nice example to illustrate. Suppose that you want to take this uh, long trip to Australia. Uh, when you retire, you have the money already, say it's 10,000 euro, and you plan to go, say, in, in, in 10 years' time. You say, okay, I'm going to save, and in 10 years' time, I will get uh, some money back from my life insurance country. Say you expect 12,000 euro. And if inflation would stay below 2%, you'll be fine. You could take that nice trip to Australia. But if inflation is, say, around 4%, which is actually inflation level that we see uh, now, then that 12,000 would not be enough. You will need about 15,000 euros to take that trip. So either you take a shorter trip or you have a less luxurious uh, stay. But anyhow, you get less value for your money than you would do today. That's what we call this loss of purchasing uh, power. So it means that yeah, people are less inclined to buy these types of savings products. Now, luckily at AGS, in the past, and we still do, uh, we always cover the guarantees that we take on. So what we promise to customers is covered by investments we buy. And we have a lot of investments like bonds, real estate, bought years ago that provide this return, this investment income to always uh, guarantee that we're able to pay what the customers were expecting. But for new policies that you buy today, certainly if you were accustomed to a return of 4 or 5% in the past, it's much lower now. And therefore, the product or savings in general has become less attractive. Mm -hmm. It's a tough situation, that's clear. Peter, back to you. The pandemic has its own consequences on public debt as well, as governments have been trying to mitigate the sharp economic contraction with lots of support. Will this cast a shadow on the future? Well, it probably will. But let's not forget, first of all, that uh, governments intervened massively in the economy during the pandemic and that this was needed. This is exactly what government policy or fiscal policy should be used for. Without the government intervening, the consequences would have been even worse. So the blow to businesses and to household spending uh, was cushioned. Uh, people could uh, extend their payments into the future, got uh, income support from the government. So this helped the economy to keep going uh, in the pandemic. But in the long term, obviously, all these debts will need to be repaid. And high debts can be reduced in a number of ways. Eh? But uh, let's say the low interest rates we see today and the high inflation is one way of trying to reduce this public debt. But higher economic growth would, would obviously uh, help as well. And so growth should be structurally higher, but this is not something you can decree overnight. And this is work for the next couple of years. And I do see a couple of positive signs there. In the United States, we have the Build Back Better, which is uh, more than one trillion US dollars being in, uh, being invested. In Europe, we have uh, the, uh, the Green Deal. And this should not only be a boost to economic growth in the, the short run, but it should strengthen our economic uh, tissue and our economic growth potential in uh, the longer run. The first part of this uh, episode is almost over, gentlemen, so please give me your key takeaways before we move on to the next part. I'll start with you, Peter. Well, first of all, the worldwide economy received a huge blow and Europe was no exception. So the economy went down sharply, but uh, survived this relatively well. Also, thanks to uh, the quick development of vaccines, vaccination campaigns, as well as uh, fiscal policy. There are always dangers lurking on the horizon, but I do see many opportunities for the next couple of years as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Antonio? Yeah, I know a quote that is used a lot, but actually should never waste a good crisis and we have a good crisis now uh, so concretely the pandemic should be a, a wake-up call for europe and a possibility to actually work more together now cooperation already improved since the start of the crisis 
But I really believe that Europe should continue uh, on that path. Before we talk about the opportunities laying ahead for Europe, I want to briefly discuss about its recent past. About 10 years ago, Europe was hit by the Eurozone crisis, which was a financial crisis. A couple of years later, there was the refugee crisis, only to be followed by the vote for Brexit. Is Europe really going from crisis to crisis, or does it only seem so? And has the EU learned from these crises? Well, when we look at the, the, let's say, the past 10, 15 years, it seems to be that Europe evolves from crisis to crisis. And every time uh, Europe's death or Europe's demise is being forecast, and, and every time it seems to be premature. Let's also not forget that uh, after the Second World War, Europe was born out of a very recent crisis in a bid to try to unite uh, France and Germany in a new uh, trade union, basically. And so uh, when we think of uh, Brexit or we think of the migration crisis, every time we thought that the Eurozone was going to end, and this ultimately never Never happened. And again, the pessimism was usually concentrated in Europe. And ultimately, what unites us seems to be much bigger than what sets us apart, as Antonio has uh, mentioned earlier. And crises are true moments of change for Europe. And that is true for many reasons. And the way in which we arrive at compromises and new solutions will probably not get a prize in a beauty contest. Yet everybody realizes that together we can do, do so much more than individually. And as was already mentioned by Antonio, maybe a country level is is too small to tackle a pandemic. The worldwide level is too big, and this might be uh, an ideal position for Europe. In particular, in this day and age, we talk about COVID, increasing geopolitical uh, tensions. We talk about the climate challenge. These are huge challenges, but these are also fantastic opportunities for Europe to rise to the occasion and to strengthen Europe. And so, for example, we could unite around a common foreign policy when it comes to our position in the world. So we could be more assertive on the global stage. Also, climate transition and, and the investments could actually be to Europe what the New Deal was to the US in the 1930s. And so, all in all, looking back at history, looking back at the recent history and the challenges we face today, I'd rather see the glass half full rather than uh, half empty. Mm -hmm. I would like to pick up on that point of climate transition. Just recently, we had the COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties in Glasgow, where the world came to a new global climate agreement. Now, Europe is very ambitious with its own Fit for 55 climate goals. Antonio, could you explain what these goals actually are and can we achieve them? Yeah, very briefly. Europe uh, wants to achieve a 55% reduction in CO2 emissions by 2030. That's not that far away. And be actually carbon neutral in 2050. It is, as Peter was saying, obviously an enormous uh, challenge. But it's necessary to reduce the impact of climate change on our planet the costs in terms of floods, storms, extreme weather, famine, mass migration would be just too high. The problem is that we ask people to take some pain now, to make costs now, for an, a disadvantage, an issue, a problem that's for them uh, far away in the future. And that is obviously not an easy one, but it is the only way. And uh, It's very good that people act out of themselves, out of responsibility for the next generations and the planet and do the right things. Um, but I also think that you need uh, legislation uh, and also market mechanisms that promote people to do the right thing, say, take your bicycle or a train to go to work, and kind of penalizing doing the wrong things, say, 
take your car, particularly if it's uh, a fossil fuel uh, car. Um, so we need really everybody to work on this, and the challenge is huge. But also, particularly for Europe, the potential is, is also enormous. It could lead to an enormous boom in green, sustainable investment and, and innovation for Europe. So we all need to work together on this, as you say. But a logical question is now, Antonio, what is Aegeas doing in this respect? Well, as Aegeas, we've already stopped actually for many years investing in coal industry, which you know is a very polluting industry. And we're gradually also extending the, the scope of industries we're not investing. So, for example, tobacco, that's a more sustainability issue, but it's also industry we don't invest in anymore. Uh, at the same time, we're also doing a lot of what we call positive investments. So invests in assets, in projects that make a, a positive contribution to climate and sustainability. And as a GS, we set us a target to have by 2024 10 billion euro invested in those assets. And we already have today about uh, 6 billion. Now, these investments are um, obviously renewable energy like solar and wind parks, but also ports, uh, social housing, nursing homes, schools. And just to give you some concrete examples, uh, we have the largest solar roofed warehouse in Europe installed. That's in France and in Le Havre. Uh, and um, another type of example is what we do with so-called green parts in the UK, where we actually promote the reuse of spare parts in case of a car accident and not always find the new replacements, which actually saves in the manufacturing of the spare parts uh, and saving in that manufacturing obviously also reduces the use of CO2. Now, Peter, I would like to discuss to what extent green investments are also opportunities. Antonio already stated that the rewards can be huge. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of positive angles to climate transition. And you see the amounts governments are investing, just the amounts itself will generate a lot of growth. But the trouble is obviously that people tend to live in the here and now. People don't really like to think about the future. People obviously think that here and now is more important than the future. So you need to bring the future much closer to them and convince them and mobilize them that, let's say, running a small cost today could save much more costs in the long run. And so if we um, go in that direction, and try to uh, reduce the energy dependence of Europe on other regions, And this could hold a, a nice future for Europe. We have uh, wind for wind power. We have mountains for water energy. We have sun. So if we engage in that direction, we could actually yield a lot of positive benefits. So we could then help to lower our energy bills, which have gone up so much recently. Yes, we could uh, reduce our energy bills. Uh, that's the first thing. We need to do the investments up front as well that will generate uh, growth as well. And so more investments in energy efficiency, uh, clean energy, isolating homes can decrease, for example, our dependence on Russian gas or gas from the Middle East. And climate change in general could be this generation's moonshot, as we would say. Uh, John F. Kennedy introduced his plans to go to uh, the moon early 1960s, and uh, not because it was easy, but uh, because it was difficult. And so we often refer to moonshots as these uh, topics or these uh, strategic actions that are seem far-fetched, but uh, can actually mobilize an entire population. And that would be an ideal way to show that Europe uh, still counts. It would mean 
more innovation in Europe, uh, European energy giants, uh, companies that we could create, climate giants, uh, showing that Europe leads the way when it comes to reducing CO2. And so the potential is almost unlimited, and you need to put that into people's minds that it has a lot of benefits from the way we design cities to the way we power our industry, how we transport our goods, how we grow our food. Uh, for example, if uh, red meat becomes more expensive because of a CO2 tax, all of a sudden, meat that has been grown in a laboratory might become much more uh, competitive. It could actually convince much more people. And man has a tendency to rise to the occasion and tackle challenges. Huh? We are not a species that gets defeated very easily. The thing is, we only react when the danger is imminent. And let's say the danger is imminent right now. And the EU could use this climate challenge for the better as well. And ultimately, after all the criticism and pessimism and sarcasm and cynicism about Europe, this might be the project that we could use to reinvigorate the European project. My final question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it does often feel like the world is retrenching. Trade conflicts, the pandemic, tensions between the US and China. What does this mean for Europe? Antonio? What? Well, it's indeed a reality that we have this globalization in reverse. In America, they talk about uh, buy America. You have seen also this vaccine nationalism uh, popping up. But what it actually means for Europe is that it is a great opportunity because we are a continent that believes in free trade, open borders, free markets, negotiation. That is like uh, second nature to us. Uh, so we are facing in the world a lot of challenges, but I think Europe has great opportunities. We should really promote the growth of the true common internal market uh, in Europe and have more trade within Europe to compensate less trade that we'll have with the rest of the world. Now, we all uh, still remember Brexit, uh, a traumatic experience both for the UK and the European Union, for the European Union because it was the first time that one of its member states uh, left. And I think for the UK, it's also not been uh, all roses. We all remember uh, the queues in front of uh, petrol stations, the lack of truck drivers, uh, etc. So I think this crisis should help Europe uh, get more closer together also on the political side. We have this monetary union, whereby actually we have centralized monetary policy. Um, but you need also to have uh, a common political union. And actually, already the, the founding fathers of this uh, monetary union, uh, Jacques Delors and Helmut Kohl, a long time ago, said that actually that project, that great project, would never be ready, would never be finalized without this political union. And, and with that, we could really get to one single market with free trade uh, that you could really say for a company like AGS, operate from one of the member states and really sell your services throughout Europe without a lot of legislative borders and hassle. That, that is the case uh, today. So it would be a great benefit for us. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, we have almost come to the end of this episode. So to finish off, please, could you tell me what your key takeaways are, Peter? Well, in Europe, just as in the rest of the world, but let's focus on Europe, we face um, a lot of challenge, but we have faced a lot of challenges in the past as well. And we've always risen to the occasion and, and that should and could be the case this time around. And politicians, media, but also populations tend 
to focus a lot on the here and now. And we're often discouraged with uh, the lack of progress in the here and now. And this, for me, is the time to uh, to look forward. If you can dream it, and we can do it. And if there's one continent in which this uh, could work, it will be Europe. Yeah, if we can dream it, we can do it. That's a beautiful motivational quote. What's your takeaway, Antonio? Well, I, I share strongly uh, Peter's optimism. Uh, Europe is a great place to live and has a lot of uh, potential, a lot of strengths. And we've made a lot of progress with ups and downs, but there is still room to improve and I'm sure we will do better. The COVID crisis and the economic consequences and the climate crisis are great wake-up calls, but as Peter already has alluded to, also great opportunities to make Europe stronger. So it's actually now is the time for action and to work together to a much better European Union. Thank you for listening to Studio 2030, brought to you by Aegeas. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. For more information on Aegeas, please check out the company website at aegeas.com. 